murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by videocasestory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, we're back with the fabulous Ron Kozlowski and Caleb Kenyon from Turner O'Connor Kozlowski. That's a lot of words, but uh, we're <laughs> Ron and Caleb, thanks for being on True Law Stories. Hey, of course. Uh, and I've been working uh, with the guys over here at uh, Turner O'Connor Kozlowski, and we've been talking about a recent case they had defending someone against the federal government. I think this is a super interesting case. We have, we've had several of these types of cases on where federal criminal defense attorneys are defending people that were wrongfully accused. Now, and every we were talking about the show, not every person is wrongfully accused. There's just mitigation, but this one was a, a wrongful accusation case. But before we get into that, what's the difference between a federal case and a state case from a legal standpoint, from like the legal mechanics standpoint? Well, the federal court is just a completely different animal in so many respects from, from state court. State court can be a lot more seat of your pants. The rules are much more loose. Um, the, the, the structure is looser. You, it, it's just not as rigid in state court. Federal court, you, judges try to set out a timetable early. You have to actually abide by all the all the uh, the deadlines. Everything you want to do in a federal case, you're asking the court's permission. Uh, it's just very very structured, very complex, and very detailed, which is why a lot of the reason why they they take a long time and they're very expensive to defend, which in white collar cases, that's one of the primary uh, primary issues for people is even when they're wrongly accused, like what we're going to talk about, it, it it's just a life changing event because of that. And, and some of the people in this, as we'll talk about too, couldn't afford it or chose not to afford this type of defense and ended up just pleading out and ended up going to jail, didn't they? They did. And, uh, you know, what, what their reasons were, we can't say we weren't their lawyers, but certainly they had some of the same defenses available to them that we had. We just had a client who was lucky enough to have the resources to to dig as deep as we needed to dig and, and turn over enough rocks where we could find the path to, uh, well, in this case, convincing a jury that that uh, he was not guilty. And. So when you all see, like, let's just talk about this case. Cause so Greg Carter, let's talk about the case overall, because it was a, it was a long case. <laughs> it, it was, and Caleb's the best one to talk about how long it was because he remembers clearly uh, that when he joined us as a law student, it was one of the first things he worked on. Yeah. I, I joined the firm in March of 2015 during my first year of law school and and greg carter came in our door two months later in may so i had just finished my first year of law school and we just uh we wrapped up the case what was it six and a half years later wow that's i mean that's that's a long time to have i i can't imagine that because it's like have that weighing over your head right <laughs> I mean, having having a child, it's nine months, right? <laughs> it feels like forever. <laughs> Have the federal yeah. gov government looking at you for six and a half years and not knowing what's going to happen. And when you all, when Greg first came to you and you see it's a federal case and it's a healthcare case, what's your initial reaction when he, not just when he first came to you, but like you get this type of federal case? Well, you know, the first thing you have to do really is um, make sure that the the uh, you have the capacity and the deck is clear enough to take on a case like this because we knew right up front that this is going to be a long-term thing and it was going to be a lot of work, uh, a lot of hours spent doing it. So one of the first things you do is you look at it and you say, are we in a place right now where we can handle this kind of a case? We were in, in this situation. And then the first thing you do is debrief the client, learn as much as you can, try to talk to the government agents, lawyer, whoever happens to be involved at that point. And then what you do is you start 
your own investigation. Uh, you know, the defense team starts at a huge disadvantage because you get involved in something like this with um, the client coming to you because he's at his office one day, which is across the street from his family pharmacy. Federal agents show up with a box truck and they say, we have a warrant and they just turn the place upside down, question all these employees, take telephones, documents, computers. And you say, where, where's this even coming from? You don't know how long they've been investigating. You don't know exactly what they're investigating. So our first job is to try to find out what this is about and then start our own investigation to try to, at the outset, to try to catch up with the government, which is exactly what we did here. There's, there's two big questions that, that you have to answer quickly is who did what and who knew about what? And when you got a federal case, those are the the two big things that you really have to dive in because almost certainly, and especially with a white collar case, there's just going to be a whole lot of moving parts, a whole lot of different people. So figuring out the the diagram chart of of where everyone fits in is pretty critical early on. And and how many people were in, like involved in that diagram chart that you're talking about? think we had about a hundred employees at, at the pharmacy at the peak wow. time, right when the, the feds came and raided it. Wow. So do you have to investigate every single person? Do you, do you have to know every single person that's there? Not, not every single person, but uh, once you look into the key people and then it sort of branches out from there and you get a good sense of who knows something, who doesn't know something and who who can uh, be helpful in in revealing the truths because you know that's that's what we're looking for we're we're looking for the truths right we we get an idea of what the government thinks and then we're trying to find out okay what's the truth and sometimes the truth is helpful sometimes it's good for the defense sometimes it's not but we can only do the job as well as we can if we know what the truths are. So you figure out, I mean, in that case, we probably interviewed 25 people overall. I, I think that's a fairly good number who were employees or otherwise involved with, with in-depth interviews. And then plenty of others we just sort of touched base with. And, uh, and, and those people we interviewed kept up with uh, many of them over the course of the you know, five and a half years that we were investigating the case before trial. Wow, five and a half years. And between the warrants and the the federal government coming in and there actually being an arrest, how long was that space? Four and a half years. Wow. Four, so four and a half years of just sitting there going, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Was there any point where you're like, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen? That he's not going to get arrested. <laughs> wishful thinking. And yes, we suffer from wishful thinking sometimes. But and, and, you know, that's the thing is the government never comes out and says, OK, we've closed our investigation. We found no, nothing wrong here. That doesn't happen. So you really have to wait for a statute of limitations to run before you can be sure. Um, and so, sure, there were times, I think, where we thought, well, maybe this is just going to be dropped. But as soon as you start thinking that there's some indication that it's not going to be dropped, that, that, that they're still looking. Um, and, and, and here's the thing, and this is, I think, what, what um, leads to prosecutions when uh, a person is innocent. And, and remember, in this case, there were several defendants, four defendants in a trial. And I, I know our client was innocent. But when you look at the big picture, which we probably can talk about, uh, certainly some things were appeared to be improper mm -hmm. but the question was like Caleb said who knew what and who who did what so I, but I think what happens is once once the government the agents get a hold of something and they start learning things they get to a point where they're so invested in it that if there's enough smoke they keep going and then if they find fire they try to branch out and then at some point it's almost like there's a, a point of no return where they can't go back and say, you know what, we were wrong about this because they've convinced them. I'm not saying it's because they they have bad intentions or bad motives. 
they just get to a point where they become convinced that every uh, close call goes against our client. That every time there's a close call, they they view it as, well, yep, that's a close call, but it it indicates to me that this person is guilty of something. So they get so invested in it that they can't really go backwards and say, ah, never mind, we were wrong. Can you divulge an example of that in this case? So, you know, there were, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example and Caleb can, can jump in if there's something uh, I'm not thinking of, but when you, when you take uh, s- relatively small facts that we had, for instance, we had a spreadsheet of we, that we called good faith because what we were trying to show is that our client, Greg Carter, did everything he could properly. And um, uh, he was trying to play by the rules and trying to make sure that his employees didn't do anything wrong. So we had this list of things and they could have been an email or a text message or a fact about, um, you know, some training they provided. And our take on it is, right, that shows the good faith of Greg that he was trying to do it right. If you step aside and look at it on the flip side, you might have a government agent who says, well, right, he did that because he was trying to cover up the fact that he knew he was breaking the law. And that's why he did this training. It was just a sham to make it look like he was trying. Wow. And, and there's all these little things that, that that sort of thing happens. We have to look at it from both sides. Yeah. What, what we really saw happen here is whatever preconceived notion you have of the case affects the way you view any close call. And this was a type of case where, where there was definitely illegal behavior going on, like Ron said. It would, you know, some, some low-level people in, in Greg's organization were breaking the law, and there was a whole lot of money that was being made, most of it legitimately. But, but when the agents took those two factors together and they said, we know some people are breaking the law. And we know the person that's getting rich from it is Greg Carter because he owns this corporation. This has to be a fraud. So they started from that that place. So so they they had a presumption of fraud in everything that they looked at, which is kind of the antithesis of our legal system where you're supposed to be presumed innocent. But as it often goes in an investigation like this, when when everything's presumed fraud, that innocent explanation turns into a cover up. And, and like Ron said, that's exactly what they said over and over and over again. Well, I I just want to clarify what the charges ended up being. Did you, what they were, and did you know those were going to be the charges? We did not know what the charges were going to be until the indictment came down. It was a conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. And then it was a a payment of a kickback to solicit a a service covered by, by a, a healthcare plan. And then um, money laundering, which is just basically taking money that's illegally gained and depositing it in the bank. And, and so all in all, if everything went bad and, and top level, what kind of punishment was he looking at? Was Greg looking at for that? I think his guidelines were at about 28 years, if I recall correctly. So it was, would have basically been a life sentence. Life sentence. Yeah. So, Ron, you were going to say something about the, the cover up piece of it then? No, well, no, it wasn't so much about the cover-up piece. It was something Caleb hit on, though, about the money. And that's it's really something that informed us from the very beginning of this case all the way through trial, and it became a theme at trial, which is that when there's so much money involved, and I know we haven't yet talked about how much, but when you're talking about tens of millions of dollars um, going into, you know, coming out of a, a government healthcare uh, uh, plan, insurance, essentially, going to private people to pay for prescriptions in this case, it, it, it does a couple things. It raises all kinds of suspicions in, in, uh, the, in the government investigators because they say, well, there's this much money, they're earning this much money, there's got to be something illegal about how they're doing it. The other thing it does is because of the way the healthcare system is structured, there's always places in there, sort of like the tax system, 
where people can find ways to use it to their advantage and make a lot of money. So not only does it raise suspicions among government investigators, it also is just sitting out there tempting for people to take advantage of. And even though they could make a lot of money legally, people don't stop there. They find ways to do it illegally too. So that money piece was just huge from the beginning. So, you know, you get these federal charges and you, and you know that, I mean, whether it's, it's, and I think this is an interesting discussion, whether it's intentional or not, that the feds don't stop once they get going. What did you feel the chances at when the charges first came through that you're going to walk away scot-free or well, Greg was. I don't know. Caleb, what did we tell Greg the odds were of uh, not being convicted? I, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> it's somewhere around 2% in the federal system. If charges are brought, it's wow. somewhere around 2% of people who, who don't get convicted because generally they bring charges against low-hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's people that have to plead guilty. Very few go to trial and in trials, hardly anybody's acquitted. Uh, it's just a rare thing. Now, what's interesting about Greg Carter in this case is that he was easily the most optimistic person on the team. He told us from the day he walked into our office that he didn't do anything wrong. And he told us all the way through to the verdict, see, I told you so. I knew this would work out okay. And we said, well, <laughs> we're really happy you did, Greg, because uh, you were right. But we, 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 you know, we're defense lawyers. We, we, we can never be that confident. We, we live yeah. it every day. So, yeah, I, I'm sure you've seen people that were you, you were judged were 100 percent innocent and they knew they were innocent and still went to jail. Right. And that's happened before, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, yeah, if, if you think there's no wrongfully convicted people in prison right now, then take a look at the innocence project. Yeah. And, and it's even more so like the federal government decides they're going in one direction. It's, it's like you're saying, it's kind of like a, a train a runaway train, not in a bad, and that's a bad sense, but you're, they're not stopping it. There's no one turning around and, and the federal's going, Oh, I, I made a mistake. And that's, that's actually something that, that really became obvious in this case once we got to trial, you, you talked about what our thoughts were when the indictment first came down. The The reality was actually when the indictment first came down, it didn't make sense to any of us because we we didn't really understand what they believed Greg Carter had done that was illegal. You, you read through this whole thing and it was, I don't know, maybe 20 pages of an indictment. And the factual allegations against Greg Carter were that he was in a conspiracy. He owned and operated a pharmacy. He uh, gave money to somebody else. And then he put money that he earned from his business in his bank account. And, and we said, okay, sounds like that's things people do every day. I don't know what's yeah. illegal about any <laughs> <know>. of that. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and he used that money to buy something. <laughs> he didn't yes, even they, do that. <laughs> yeah, they didn't really even allege that. Well, I guess they 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 alleged that he bought his house uh, with with money that 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 he illegally earned. But yeah, it, you know, <laughs> worked out in the end. Um, uh, but but that whole thing about the money was really so so critical to the uh, to the entire case because when people see that much money, it, whether it be an investigator, uh, a judge, or a jury, you know it raises all sorts of suspicions and, and thoughts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so, okay, now you're getting into the case. And tell me about preparing for trial because I mean, if, if Greg's that innocent is it, it feels that innocent, was he taking the preparation seriously? Oh, absolutely. He's, he, he is, uh, he, he was a full participant in his defense. There's no question about it. But, you know, one of the first things we had to do, this is an allegation of healthcare fraud based on kickbacks in the, pharma in the pharmacy uh, arena. So the first thing we really had to do was understand how the, the, the ins and outs of the way uh, these prescriptions were generated, 
the way they were filled and the way they were paid for, reimbursed by insurance companies. And to get into that, to, to get into that a little bit, the 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 system is set up for this. These were compound medications, and people may have heard about compound medications and various fraud that's happened over the last 10, 15 years. But compound medications are medications that are not sold uh, by the big uh, pharmaceutical companies. They're, they're formulas that pharmacists put together based on the input or, or uh, direction of doctors. So for instance, somebody might not tolerate well uh, a regular prescription drug, but if one or two ingredients were out of it, then they would be fine. So the doctor you know, signs a prescription and a compounding pharmacy makes up this medication uh, on their own. And it's, it's loosely regulated, I guess, if at all, by the FDA. So it, once these became popular several years ago, it sort of became a bit of a wild west. And what's interesting about the system that we had to understand early was the way that insurance companies pay for these things, the way they determine how much it is. One of the allegations in the case uh, that the government kept saying was that the pharmacy charged a certain amount. Well, that's not exactly accurate because what happens is these compounded medications are reimbursed by insurance companies based on the individual ingredients. So let's say ingredient one is reimbursed at you know $500 a gram, ingredient two at $200 a gram, whatever it is. And when you combine all the ingredients into a medication, the insurance company gets the, the prescription and they just do a calculation automatically that spits out how much they're going to pay for this medication. Well, for these compounds, which were used largely by people in the military, there were scar creams, pain creams, migraine things, and they were being reimbursed by insurance companies between $2,000 for a one-month supply and $25,000 for a one-month supply. Wow. And and I would say the average, Caleb, you know, you would remember this better than me, but I'd say between five dollars and $15,000 was probably the, the average range of what these were reimbursed at by the, by, by the insurance company. Yep. It was right, right around there. And, and that, wow, that you just said, I am is, is really, I think what led to the presumption of fraud as well. As soon mm -hmm. as people heard the sticker price of a single month's prescription cost of, of you know, $25,000, because and, and everyone always picked the highest paying one when they wanted <laughs> to make the point that this is fraud, they'd always say, well, these are $26,000 each. And, but, but as soon as people see that, and they hear, well, it's, and it's, it's a cream for scars, there's an immediate assessment of the value of the product and saying it's not worth that amount, therefore it must be fraud. Mm. And so that was another another thing that we were dealing with in the cases. And I, and I think what got us to the place of everyone assuming it was fraud is even though the pharmacy had no control over the price, people were patently offended by the price. That's interesting. That's interesting. And you've got to feel that someone in the government was embarrassed that, that they were spending that amount. <laughs> that was certainly our uh, one, one of the theories we had, one of the pitches we made, because, see, in, uh, private insurers paid for, paid for these, these medications, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, uh, others, they, they paid for these, as did TRICARE, which is the military insurance. But at some point around 2014, the private insurers stepped back and said, wait a minute, we're spending way too much. There's a couple of things wrong here. One, it can't be that all these people need these medications. And they also said, this pricing system that we use is not legitimate either because we they all just relied on this national clearinghouse. The wholesalers report the prices and that's what they reimbursed at. The private insurers stepped back and said, we shouldn't be doing this. And they cut their reimbursements drastically to what were really more reasonable prices. But the government insurer, the military insurance TRICARE, went on for another year and a half paying top dollar that they didn't need to. 
And then when it finally got to the point where auditors said, inside the government said, you can't be doing this. What are you doing? It's bankrupting us. They said, okay, we're going to stop. Can't have any of these medications anymore. And by the way, let's put all these people in prison because a lot of this was illegal. So it was definitely a reaction on the part of the insurance company to say, wait a minute, we've been letting people do this for a long time. We need to stop it. And it's reactionary. And, and, and they took the money that we were giving them. So we, we should put them in jail. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Now, to be clear, if people were doing, were paying illegal kickbacks and whatnot, absolutely. There's crimes yeah. and they should be prosecuted, but doesn't mean everybody was, which was, which was their stance. Yeah. And so obviously you brought that to the government before the trial and said, Hey, these were perfectly legal. I mean, you say that kind of stuff and, you, and when you're in these federal cases, does the government go, Oh yeah. Oh, you're, you're right. You're right. We made a mistake. Do they ever do that? Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, <laughs> we, we met, we met with uh, prosecutors and agents uh, a handful of times over the course of the, of the six years really. And uh, well, four and a half years, like Caleb said before indictment, but we tried to get a sense of what they believed and what evidence they had. We countered it because, you know, you, you don't go into a case, you go into a case uh, planning for trial, but you don't go into a case necessarily wanting to go to trial or presuming you're going to go to trial. It's better for the client, obviously, if you can resolve it a lot earlier than that. So that was our goal, as it always is, to say, look, here's why you're wrong. Just look at this. So we did that. And of course, we got no relief whatsoever. We just got pushback. And, you know, at that point, it became clear there was going to be a prosecution. But yes, we tried as hard as we could to say, look, you're wrong. You probably are right about some things. You're wrong about this. And they wouldn't listen, which is, is not a surprise. I mean, that's that's pretty much to be expected. Doesn't mean you quit trying. And and what they what the government would do too, because just to to put this in perspective, over the course of the two years that kind of were at stake in the case where the pharmacy's operating, there was about thirteen thousand prescriptions that were filled. So it was a, a pretty substantial amount of medication that was dispensed from the pharmacy. And uh, you know, if if you think for one second that the federal prosecutor went through every prescription and figured out which ones were legitimate and which ones weren't, you know, we're, we're fooling ourselves. They had a couple of prescriptions that they would continuously point back to. And, and sometimes they weren't even correct um, in, in the assertions that they were making. But, but the government would, when we would try to say, these prescriptions are, are valid, they're, they're signed off on by a doctor, the pricing is approved by the, you know, the, the contract, nothing was done untoward here on, on account of Greg Carter, the, the government would just say, well, but, but we've got, look, look at this one prescription that, that, you know, this is a problem. And basically if this one is bad, we know they're all dirty. And so it was kind of this lump everything in all for one, one for all mentality that they had, which you really can't have in a case of this magnitude. And, and what had happened, what had happened, uh, over the over the 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 course of the pharmacy marketing these prescriptions, you know, Greg had hired somebody who came to him uh, with a plan to more aggressively market compounds, especially not not only but especially to the military community. It's in Jacksonville, um, and to others, and that's what Greg would traditionally do, right? He would go market his his services to to doctors, to medical offices. Well, these folks came in and said, well, we can do that. And we can also market to patients, right? Just like the drug manufacturers do. If you watch any news program or a sports event, they're selling Keytruda and everything else. Well, that's what they were doing here on a small scale, marketing it to, to people saying, hey, you know, Ian, do you have this issue or that issue? I have a resource where you might be able to get help you should go see your doctor and ask about this or go see this particular doctor and ask about it. 
where the problem came in is that some people were had relationships with doctors and doctors were behaving improperly mm -hmm. or or the 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 salesperson was actually paying a kickback to a patient and saying if you get this prescription i'll pay you a hundred dollars let's say because i know that if i do that i'm going to earn two thousand dollars in on the sale and i'll pay you a hundred of it and obviously that's that's illegal but like caleb was saying just because that might have happened on a uh, on the lowest level doesn't mean the people at the upper level know what's going on even though they try to keep it under control and make sure it's not happening so that's you know once the government sees that this has happened and they have people telling them i did this or i did that they take and extrapolate it all the way to the top and say well obviously everybody's in it together and but and you i mean you can't know for certain that greg didn't know or can you um well no greg what Greg always told us is, I called the police and started this whole thing. Crooks don't do that. So, and and he's not entirely wrong either. Um, but you know, really, to answer your question, can we know? No, and and that's the that's the terror that you have as a defense attorney going into trial is you don't know what's out there that you don't know. But it, when when our client is the one that called the cops on his employees for breaking the law you've got a pretty good indication. Yeah. And so trial, you're going into trial, you're, you're ner I mean, like you said, you're nervous, you're just not sure what's going to happen. W was there a point where you're like, oh, this isn't going our way? Uh, <laughs> not, you know, I, I really the whole trial uh, unfolded just like we, we hoped it would and thought it might. All the things that we had been saying in negotiations for those six and a half years um, had not changed by trial. The things that we said were holes in the government evidence remained holes at trial. Uh, the things that we knew we had on our side that they wouldn't listen to or believe came out our way at trial. All the testimony came out like we wanted it to um, on both sides. The witnesses the government had, we we saw who we thought their witnesses would be, and we said, "Well, these are not very strong witnesses against against our client against Greg." And you get to the testimony, and you think, "Okay, well, what's going to happen that I'm not aware of?" <laughs> and turns out, nothing happened. Now, the the one thing that did happen at trial that was toward the end, and it was there was a lot of uncertainty was that the person who was sort of the second in command at the pharmacy, uh, she was in charge of operations, essentially. And she had been a very cooperative person with us in interviews, several interviews during our investigation, insisted that, that she never did anything wrong and Greg never did anything wrong. And... Um, uh, you know, said she was suspicious about some people, but they 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 watched them like hawks as best they could, and there were no problems. Well, as the indictment comes out and we start getting discovery and evidence from the government, we find out that at some point she had decided to jump ship, and now she went to the government and was telling investigators the opposite of what she had been telling us for four and a half years, but we saw what documentation she had provided and it proved nothing. It was just a lot of hearsay from her that could be spun a number of different ways. And we didn't believe anything she said that was, uh, uh, that was inculpatory of, of, of Greg at all. Uh, and then I'll let Caleb talk about what happened when she was supposed to be called as a witness at trial. <clears throat> yeah, she she was the one wild card, um, but but like Ron said, in her statements that she gave to law enforcement, they were all general. They were all well. Everybody knew everything that was going on, and and so we really didn't know what specifics she was going to say. We didn't know if she was going to say, well, on May nineteenth of twenty fifteen, Greg 
got a call from so-and-so and that person told Greg, I just paid this doctor. What do I do? You know, that, that was the thing that we were afraid of. Um, so she was the true wild card of what could this person possibly say? What could this person possibly make up? And there's, you know, more things we can imagine she can make up that would be pretty believable in, in a fact pattern like we had. But we were a week into to trial, a week and a half. You know, this is this case is set for five weeks of trial, I believe it is. Wow. And the government's put on a whole lot of really nothing as far as Greg was concerned. And, you know, we're the only person we're waiting for is this this one witness, this one right hand woman. And uh, the government says, well, they're they're planning on calling her the next day. This is a Tuesday and the, the judge is making them say who their witnesses are for the next day or something like that. And uh, <clears throat> then I don't remember how exactly it came out, but the, the, the prosecutor came over and says, well, we, we might have a problem with this witness. Um, it, she, she thinks she might have COVID. <laughs> and, and, and again, this is, this is fall of 2021 kind of, you know, when, People were starting to be less concerned with the pandemic, but the Delta wave was was really starting to get into full swing. So that was a reasonable possibility. Um, we were all masked up the whole trial, so you know we were still taking COVID pretty pretty seriously. And uh, <clears throat> so at some point, the government attorney lets the judge know, "Well, judge, we, we've got this issue. We really need this witness. We can go forward with these other witnesses." And so we finally get to the the end of the line as far as who else do they have left and it, all it is is this this one woman who's who's potentially going to say the most damaging things about our client um and now it's a i want to say it's a, a thursday and the, the the government files a a motion an ex parte motion that they weren't supposed to basically they send an email to the judge is kind of what it came down to and didn't tell us about it saying, well, judge, she, she's got COVID and, uh, you know, we're, we're having her go get a test. Um, and then they finally bring us into the picture. And then we have a conversation with the judge and the prosecutor. And the judge says that she'll give, she'll give the government the week, like give them Friday off and the weekend and see if this person gets better. And, and I, I want to say Monday was even a holiday. And so we didn't come back to court until Tuesday. So we come back to court on Tuesday, and and this is you know th this is the moment of truth for us, and we we get a, a doctor's note that's provided because the judge says I want to see a doctor's note. I don't want this person's word. I want her to go down to a doctor, and I want that. And the government turns over over the weekend, and and we get it in court, and we have it in front of the judge a, a doctor's note that says patient test positive for COVID, and then the doctor's notes activity as tolerated for 10 days parenthetical no court close parenthetical <laughs> <laughs> no court and allowed <laughs> and, and the judge says i have to say i have never seen a note from a doctor quite like this but what are we going to do now and and uh, and at that point after putting it off for about four or five days, the government just decided, I guess we won't be able to call her as a witness after all, which, uh, you know, we had our suspicions all along, whether she would show up as a witness based on all the contradictory statements she had made, because everything she might have testified to, we had our investigator there prepared to put him on the stand and say all the contradictions in the things that she had told him prior. So, uh, you know, the government didn't know what she had told us. She knew. And we believed all along that she was going to be very um, reticent to get up on the witness stand. So did she have COVID? I don't know. Did she get a doctor to say she wasn't allowed to come to court? I don't know. But she never came to court. The doctor's note, the famous doctor's note to not go to court. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> my, my, my grandmother's sick or uh, my yeah. grandfather died, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is your fourth grand grandmother that died. How does that work, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know what? 
in, in that moment, though, when when the government said they weren't moving forward with her as a witness, I think that was the moment where we all took a big sigh of relief of, OK, we've seen everything that, that the government has and they don't have anything. They, they literally do not have any evidence that Craig Carter did anything wrong. He's had to sit through this whole trial. But, you know, the, the one wild card that they had never got dealt and you know, was, go, go ahead. ahead sorry no, no go, ahead. go. I, was, I was just gonna i was gonna <laughs> say that it, it, it's uh uh what after she didn't testify it that got to the point where we said okay well really almost nobody in this trial no witness has said anything about greg carter and that was only a, a step removed from another defendant in the trial who was represented by friends of yours vince citro and mark horowitz who I think his name was never mentioned by a witness in the entire trial. So even more dramatic than, than, than our client. I mean, it was to the point where every witness who testified when it came time for cross-examination, Vince would just stand up and say, we have no questions for this witness, your honor, because <laughs> they had nothing to ask about because nobody ever mentioned their client's name. It it got to the point too, where, where he would say it in a different way each time. And even the jury laughed, I think at about the final time. And, you know, and if you all haven't seen Vince's episode, you can go back and watch it. Uh, he tells some funny stories too, but okay. So you've got to be frustrated at this point, or are you more frustrated or relieved? Because it's like, you can't be relieved and frustrated at the same time. Can you? I don't know. Maybe you can. <laughs> Actually, I think you can. I, I think you can. I think it was relief that all the hard work we had put in and everything we believed and everything we had told our client came to pass, that we weren't surprised by anything, that we had gotten it right. Um, we, were, we were relieved about that and happy about that, obviously. But at the same time, after we get past that point of saying, well, thank goodness we were right. We got this one right. Then you look at each other and you say, the frustration comes out because you say, why are we here? Why, why did we have to go through this? Yeah. Why did we take six years of our lives? And why did the client have to spend all this money on a defense if this is all there was? And so I think you're, I think you can be frustrated and relieved at the same time. And, and as crazy as it is, there's a third emotion going through of anxiety at the same time. Because what, what we you know have talked about multiple times is that this dollar figure. So in this case, the the pharmacy was what brought in over about a year and a half, $29 million. Wow. So and, and it went from making you know two or three million the year before to 29 million. So it was this this dramatic scale up in, in income. And so we're relieved, there's no evidence against our client. We're frustrated that we've told them this from the beginning. They're wasting, I don't know how many government dollars to put this trial on. But then you're anxious because you don't know, is the jury going to be able to get past that dollar figure? Are they going to see that and be taken in with the same sway that the government had of, this is just too much money, it's got to be fraud. And, and there's always a risk of that when you're dealing with a jury. You don't know what's going through their heads. Yeah. You know, there was an interesting question in jury selection that uh, the judge asked that our the defense side had had proffered. And, and just so so people understand, in state court, jury selection is way different from in federal court. In state court, each lawyer for one for the defense and one for the, the, the state, obviously, get to question the potential jurors before selecting the jury using the system you know that, that that that's in place in federal court very very rarely does that happen the judge asks questions to the judge's satisfaction and we we are allowed to submit questions that we want the judge to ask but the judge asks what the judge wants to ask and most of them treat it uh, they don't treat it with the same gravity that the lawyers do for, for whatever reason. And in this case, one of the questions we asked the judge to ask, and she surprisingly did, was, 
just because someone makes a lot of money in a short period of time, do you think that means something must be illegal about it? And it was a great question. I frankly don't think yeah. it was either of us that came up with that question. It was one of the other lawyers, but it was it was a brilliant question. We never thought the judge would ask it. She did. And that got us, I think, a long way when we saw the answers from people to 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 trying to defeat this idea that, well, there's a lot of money involved. So somebody's guilty of something. Yeah. And so, yeah, because you're saying you've got this anxiety and now the, you know, the, the jury convenes and, and they go off to make their decision. What is that moment like? Cause I was like talking about this cause it feels like it's one of those moments. I feel like the only way you can feel it is if, if you've been involved in it and I don't ever want to be involved in it. I don't think I'm going to go to law <laughs> school and I hopefully I'm not every ever have to hire you all so i want to know what does that feel like you know the the anxiety is is just well first of all before you get to that moment well when the jury goes out you have no idea how long they'll be out right mm -hmm. it could be it could be half an hour it could be an yeah. hour in a case like this you probably it's not going to be like that because they heard a month of testimony basically but um you know you you retire to a room somewhere in the courthouse and you've got all the defense lawyers sitting in the room talking biting their fingernails you've got in our case the clients joined and and a couple of their spouses and there's you know they're more even more anxious than we are obviously because it's them or, or, or their loved one so you've got that period where you're sitting for hours just killing time, wondering what's going to happen, trying not to discuss what you think's going to happen. You know, it, mm. well, it should be this or it should be that. And then finally, somebody says, you know, just stop because we're just killing ourselves, wondering when we have no idea what the jury's talking about. We can guess, but we really have no idea. So there's that whole part of it, which is is difficult. And we waited over a weekend because the jury decided late on a Friday that they would take the weekend off and come back, not deliberate into the night and over the weekend. So that's sort of a double-edged sword too. They came back the next week and it was pretty quick after that. But then there's the moment of being in court, which is what you might've been asking about and just sitting there waiting for the judge to, to get it and then yeah. get the verdict and then read it uh, and having all the jurors, you know, looking at, the defendants, the government, whoever they're looking at, the the tension is so palpable, and the the not a sound in the courtroom from anybody. It's it's. Uh, I think you're right, Ian. You, you can't know what that feels like unless you feel it. I know Caleb had some particular emotions that he shared afterwards uh, with us. <laughs> the, the, you know, this, this was a case that had literally gone on longer than I had practiced law. It, it had gone on the entirety of my legal career and then some. <laughs> That's crazy. And, and so for me, um, I had lived this case. That, that first summer um, when I was a, a first-year law student, I, I spent every day 40 plus hours a week just pouring over all of the different laws that could be at play because we didn't know which one we didn't have the indictment we just knew federal government healthcare fraud maybe it's a pharmacy so I, I i had lived this case for years and years and years um and so i had a lot invested and 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 <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to clients too i i I care very, very deeply about my clients. So having lived this case, having it taken my entire career, caring for Greg, Greg becoming a friend throughout the course of this case, he's there now looking at the the rest of his life in prison potentially. I, and, and I had sat through the whole trial. I knew there was no evidence that he did anything wrong. If they had convicted him, what I told what I told Ron and the other lawyers there is, I said, if that jury comes back and convicts him, I'm quitting this line of work and I will never <laughs> do another criminal defense case. I will, I refuse to be a part of injustice that goes on like this. Um, and, and, and you know what, that was not hyperbole. I was not being dramatic. <clears throat> if that had happened, I would have handed Ron my two week notice and, and found a different place to work. Um, 
Wait, wait, so, is that yeah, some reflection it, on me? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that's the system. So tell me about the verdict being read because it, it wasn't just one person, right? It was, it was a group of people. Yeah, it was four defendants and we were listed as the second defendant. So everything in trial started with the, the, the lead defendant and then went down the line to the other three, including the verdict. And the lead defendant was the, the head of the marketing business, essentially. It was the, the person that Greg had hired who brought in a lot of other people. And as, uh, as the judges reading the charges, uh, he had four, four counts uh, against him. Greg only had three. But as the judge reads those, um, it was, help me out, Caleb, for, for him, not for Greg, guilty on conspiracy yeah. and guilty on money laundering but not guilty on paying kickbacks or receiving kickbacks and and that's important for for a number of different reasons um so so well first just as as a emotional and as a tension reason the very first count listed was conspiracy Greg Carter was accused in that same conspiracy. So the very first verdict of the first charge came out as guilty. Oof. And so as soon as that happens, we don't know what that means. We don't know what that means for the rest of the counts, but your brain is immediately going a million miles an hour trying to think through all of the possible ways that this could go with now we know that the jury believes some people are guilty of, of criminal acts here in, in this courtroom. Yeah, we, we know there's the a conspiracy. That... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, we know there's a conspiracy. We just don't know who the jury believes is in the conspiracy. If they had said not guilty, we'd have known that Greg was scot-free. That if they don't think there's any conspiracy, that we could just walk out right now. But seeing as they said, yes, this person is guilty of conspiracy, then we knew there was still a chance that Greg could get convicted. Yeah. Oh. And, yeah. and for the... For the next two counts, one of the things that we haven't talked about, but was a, a reoccurring theme in this trial, is Greg Carter being conflated with the pharmacy itself as a corporate entity. And, and this gets a little hyper-technical, but under the law, a, a corporate entity is considered a person. Now, obviously, an empty building can't do anything by itself. It can only act through people. But you can't just indict and convict a corporation and then throw the guy who owns the equity in the corporation in prison. But throughout the trial, that's kind of what the government was trying to do. They would just talk about Carter's Pharmacy, and it would be this broad term for everyone that worked at the pharmacy. But then they would use that and try to try to say that meant Greg Carter personally had done something bad. So it was this idea of he should be criminally responsible for everything that the pharmacy itself did. And the, the kickback counts that this lead defendant ended up being acquitted on were payments. They were his, his direct deposit salary payments from or, or wages from the, the company payroll, just ADP, you know, which is a, a standard payroll system done by the bookkeeper straight to the lead defendant's bank account. So Greg Carter had nothing to do with it, but he was being charged with paying that kickback by the company actually paying the, the wages of each employee. So when, when count two came back of not guilty, we knew that the, the defense that we had said of these are just payments for salaries. These aren't kickbacks. We knew that was clearing Greg as far as the kickback counts. Which left just two charges against Greg, the, the money laundering and the conspiracy. Um, so once the judge got through it, the first defendant got to us. And the, the, the most important one was the first one, conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. And uh, so it's that moment that you're sitting there and you've got so many conflicting thoughts going through your brain, almost to the point that you can't think. You're just waiting to hear 
and hoping you hear it right. And as soon as she said, not guilty, I, I think our you felt our whole table, there were four of us sitting at the table, you felt our whole table just exhale and everybody sort of shoulders, you know, relax a little bit because we knew it was going to be not guilty on kickback because if the other guy didn't receive a kickback, then Greg sure didn't pay a kickback. <laughs> and if he's not guilty of conspiracy, not guilty of paying a kickback, then there's no way he can be guilty of an uh, illegal monetary transaction either. So that first one, not guilty, we knew that was it. It was going to be not guilty across the board, but you still have to hear it. Um, yeah. and, and then, of course, you hear it. And I don't know about Caleb, but I know what I did is first thing I did was glance over at the jury and see where they were looking. And they were, I think, pretty much all looking at Greg. And I thought, OK, they he, they were here. They listened. They heard and they believed us. So uh, the, the, the moment of relief there is just um, it, it's just hard to describe the, the burden that's lifted off your shoulders. I can't imagine like six and a half years of thinking about this and now it's pretty much done, but it's not done though. Is it for like, it, it doesn't magically go away when you get that not guilty verdict. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't. Um, well, and in this case, there were forfeiture counts too, where the government was uh, attempting to take his house and a whole bunch of money that they had seized and had control of for the entire six and a half years. We're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about uh, a little over $6 million. Wow. That they had seized and was just sitting there. And um, so you wonder if they're going to do anything about that, but they had never filed a civil forfeiture. They just relied on criminal forfeiture, which criminal forfeiture means, okay, you're guilty in the, of, of the crime. The forfeiture goes right along with it. The government gets the money. If they had filed a civil forfeiture claim, then they could have prosecuted that after the fact, but they had never filed it. They filed one against the, their, their home, and then they they dropped that, you know, after the not guilty, because there'd be not a whole, not much good reason to proceed at that point um, with, with that one. So it's not over in that respect, but it's, it's also not over in that. You've got a, a, a guy with a local pharmacy, very successful, has been his father, was uh, the pharmacist and pharmacy owner for since the, I want to say the 60s, Caleb, and 50s, uh, 50s actually, yeah, in, in the neighborhood there. And Greg's not a pharmacist, but he owned the pharmacy and his dad, his dad passed away during the course of, of, uh, of this case. Oh. So, um, you know, what he had built was he kept the pharmacy operating, the mom and pop part of the pharmacy with regular medications, the compounding stuff dried up, but he managed to, to, to keep uh, a, a lot of the operation going out of the regular, the, the regular pharmacy in terms of being able to, to make medications for people locally that doctors were prescribing, even though the, the, the big dollars had dried up, he found a way to stay in it, keep the pharmacy running. But that's not often the case in these sorts of cases. I mean, you're talking about most companies being destroyed over the course of an investigation and a trial like this, even if there's an acquittal. Um, but Greg was just that kind of a resilient guy that he, he kept the faith and kept it going. Um, and I mean, he had to rebuild and is still rebuilding, but he, he wasn't going to let it drag him down. Oh, man. And, yeah. and that's really a testament to Greg, too, that the other thing that it wasn't just about not letting it drag him down is he felt responsible for the 20, 25 employees that were still there at the pharmacy. You know, they, they relied on him to keep it going for their for, for to put food on their table and, and pay their rent. Um, and that actually ended up being a, a pretty big part of our defense as we brought his employees in to talk about the type of person he was. One, one of the things that we got out in evidence was that one of his employees needed a new roof, couldn't afford a new roof on her house. So Greg just paid for the whole new roof for her because he knew she couldn't afford it and he could, so he did. And, and that's the type of, of resilience and tenacity that Greg had to, to basically keep providing for all of these families in the midst of facing the rest of his life in prison. 
And, you know, we, we talked earlier, Caleb mentions that story and it, it came out at trial, but we had talked earlier we, um, about the government finding a way to look at something and, and, and make it fit into their narrative. And this is one of those things, because when we said, uh, you know, we're calling these people as employees or the employees as witnesses, <clears throat> and that's the thing we talk about, they put this this spin on it like, well, he did that sort of thing essentially as a bribe to get these people to say nice things about him. Oh. Right. And it's like, no, he did it because he's a good person, but it doesn't matter because they know he's guilty. And there's got to be a different reason he did it, not because he cared about the people. Um, so that that's that's one example of of the way a fact that you think is is good for a defendant gets turned on its head uh, by a prosecutor uh, or, or an agent, whoever it might be. Wow. Wow. That, I mean, that's it's just a crazy story, but it shows also how important it is to have quality law firms defending you and and i mean all in all how many hours of work did you all put into this to make sure wow well we could actually we could tell you <laughs> caleb probably can look it up right now and, and and get you a number but um it it oh you know and over the course of the time there were a couple other people involved even with our defense for small pieces of it along the way um, but there were times, and I don't mean just going to trial, there were there were weeks where it was pretty much consuming. Um, I, I figured at one point as we were planning for trial that for about a year, it would take as much as 50% of my time. Wow. Uh, and that was just me individually. Caleb was in a, I think, in a similar position. So, uh, you know, some weeks it was almost 100%, some weeks maybe 20%. But overall, uh, a big piece of what we do. But again, the, 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 you know, one, of the, one of the hard things to reconcile about the criminal justice system is that this is a client who was able to, who had the resources to be able to uh, hire lawyers who could spend that kind of time and put in that kind of effort. The large majority of, of defendants just don't have that ability. Um, and it's 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 a patently unfair part of the criminal justice system but it's one that i you know i don't really see a solution to uh you know we have our clients we take care of our clients uh, you know it, and it's just impossible to uh for everybody to receive the same the, the same attention um because yeah. of the economics of it yeah it's disheartening it's scary too it's scary that you know you can right. be doing the right thing the whole way and if the federal government decides that you're not, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Oh. And and I, I did look up how much time we put in, and and this is a best guess because we actually switched systems halfway through the case. You know, when a case goes on six and a half years, you, you <laughs> switch into a bunch of different systems. But uh, it looks like we spent over six and a half years between the two of us, almost 4,000 hours. Wow. Yeah. 4,000 hours. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot of time. That's that's that's, that's, that's more than time. a couple seasons of uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, can, you can see why we're so invested in the in the result uh, when you put that much of your heart and soul, uh, you know, into a into your job. Uh, it, it's not really putting it into the job. It's putting it into the people, uh, you know, or the person you're working with. And, and, you know, this is a case where we had a client who we really believed in and really believed that um that that he was worth all the blood sweat and you know tears uh that that it took um so it's gratifying it's really gratifying at the end to see it work out it doesn't always happen that way no no but i mean obviously you put hard work into it and did what you could and and it came out well and you're hardworking attorney so if someone does need a lawyer Tell us a little bit more about the types of law that you all practice. I mean, it's mainly criminal defense and throughout the state of Florida, federal criminal defense, but also you you do some other types of law as well, correct? We do. We do. Federal and state defense. It, there's uh, three of us, uh, along with Peg O'Connor, uh, who practice uh, uh, 
daily. Larry Turner, who is our senior partner, is of counsel now. He's he's on the retirement train right now. Um, so so three of us who who run the who run the practice, and uh, the large majority of our work is is criminal defense, uh, state and federal, um, but also uh, we work with. Uh, professionals and it, it, it's uh, I, I say we work professionals that's in licensing issues you know we're in Gainesville so University of Florida is there and there's a lot of things happening at the university where employees and faculty and students in a lot of cases need help with various either employment issues or disciplinary issues so we work with those folks too uh, we we assist everybody from doctors lawyers judges uh, all sorts of professionals who have professional issues, um, be it licensing or 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 some other variation of that. So that's that's the other largest part of our of our work. Awesome. Well, uh, well, hopefully not many of you are listening to this need their help, but obviously they're they're amazing attorneys and they work hard and they're great people. So go to Turner O'Connor Kozlowski. We'll put a, the link in the show notes. Uh, you can Google that or it's uh, the website. I should know that is uh, uh, TOK. Is it TOK Law? TOK Legal. But you can actually get there a couple different ways, but that's the primary way. Yes. TOKlegal.com is the the links. And where do you all spend any time on social media? Can anyone follow you on the socials? <laughs> I think we're, we're both on LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. So we'll put links to both your LinkedIn on there. Uh, well, Caleb, Ron, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Was, it. Yeah. Was a lot of fun. Thanks thank for you. having us, Ian. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And thanks for telling that story. And thank you all for listening to Ron Caleb tell this crazy story. Uh, make sure to check out their website, connect with them on LinkedIn if it's relevant or if it's not, just say hi. Say you heard them here. But thank you all for taking us on your journey. This has been on Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.